0: I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org.
1: I-94 on Lumpen Radio.
2: And good morning. Welcome once again to another edition of I-94. We are taping live. It is June 2nd, 2019. My name is Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. Mr. Michael Sack remains on paternity leave, but he will be missed. Best of luck to him and Alyssa. Today, we are joined by the author of The Wild Bunch. It is a new book out from Bloomsbury. W.K. Stratton, he goes by Kip. Kip, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh,
3: well, thanks so much for having me.
2: We really, really appreciate it. So th- this is a new book. It is a nonfiction book. It is about the making of the film, The Wild Bunch, if you're not familiar with that film. Uh, it's coming up on, is it 50 years old? It, it's been off for quite a while. 60 years, right? 68. No, no,
3: f- 50 years old this month. 50 oh, years okay. old this month, wow. In, in, uh, in June 1969.
2: Mm. Wow. Okay. So it's it's aging up there with us. Uh, it's it's getting up there. <laughs> Sam Peckinpah, the director. It's a it's a well known western film, and uh, obviously you've devoted a lot of work uh, and other nonfiction stories to to sports. You had a career at Sports Illustrated, if I remember. Is that correct, Kip?
3: Well, I, I was a freelancer, but yes, I did. That was my first magazine work. Was uh, doing some pieces for Sports Illustrated.
2: Okay, and that was back in the '80s and '90s, wasn't it? Back in the 80s into the early 90s, yes. Okay, yeah, because I worked over at Inside Sports. I remember your byline over there.
3: Oh, so I was one of the hated ones, I guess. (laughs) Well,
2: we didn't hate you. We envied you. Trust me. If you saw the offices of Inside Sports here in Evanston, Illinois, you would have known that we had a lot to be envious about. Uh, But but, but moving on from that, you've had a long career writing nonfiction, and particularly about uh, action, uh, looking at your your biography here. But what attracted you, other than your, your obvious love for the film, what attracted you to this story? in particular to write this book about it?
3: Well, you know, there there had been, uh, I think, something like three dozen books published about Sam Peckinpah before I started this project. And, uh, you know, I, I was very much taken by his art and his filmmaking. And I just had a gut feeling that sometimes you get when you've been in journalism and, and so forth that there was still a story to be told about Sam Peckinpah and, and his work that hadn't been told. So I was just kicking this around, thinking, what could that be? And then it suddenly occurred on, to me that we were coming up on the 50th anniversary of what I believe, and I think most people would agree with me, is his his greatest film, uh, The Wild Bunch. And it it was a monumentally important film in on a number of levels, not the least of which the uh, changes it it caused in making American films. Everything changed after *The Wild Bunch*. So I, uh, I I started poking around, and I realized the story of the making of it hadn't been told in full. Particularly um, the the contributions of the initial screenwriter Wayland Green, who who did very important work in in creating this story. And then I, I realized that. Uh, most of the Mexicans and Mexican Americans who had worked on this film and made major contributions to it had never been interviewed by anyone about this this movie. So I started uh, started doing that, and I realized there was a story that hadn't been told yet in full. So that that's really how the book took off is from that realization.
1: We t- you talk about uh, some parallels to to Vietnam and, and people that are kind of stuck in the past with with the theme of the movie. Obviously, you know, these guys were, uh, times were changing. And and I couldn't help but think, as as I was reading the book, there's a lot of parallels not only to Vietnam, but what we're going through in America right now.
3: Oh, I totally, totally agree. Uh, The years, it was filmed in 1968. Now, that was the... uh, uh, you know, a year when the, the Vietnam War and America's involvement was really kind of at a climax. That was the year of major political assassinations, Martin Luther King, um, Robert Kennedy. It was the year of the riots in Chicago around the Democratic National Convention. Plus, worldwide, there it was the, the year of the student uprisings in uh, in Paris, and that was the year that the Soviets involved and in, invaded Czechoslovakia to put down uh, a freedom movement there. And it was also a year when in Mexico, which was hosting the Olympics, uh, the president of Mexico didn't want Mexico to be embarrassed by political dissent during the, the Olympics. So there were about 200 people who simply disappeared from the country and have never been heard of since. Um, a political activist that that happened just in Mexico. So there was 1968 was really a year of uh, significant turmoil And uh, you know, the author Joan Didion uh, went back to a William Butler Yeats poem and picked out the line, the center cannot hold. And, you know, this beast slouching toward Bethlehem, it kind of seemed that way in America at the time. 1969 wasn't, you know, much better. We had Altamont, we had, uh, the Manson killings, and, and that sort of thing. So it was really a very violent time in America history, and one in which the old order didn't seem like it was going to last. And certainly, as you say, here we are in the uh, the late 20-teens, and it's it has kind of a similar feel to it as well. Uh, it's It seems like maybe the center can't hold here uh, right now. So uh, I think you're you're absolutely right in that observation that we can look at what went on in the the Wild Bunch and see some kind of allegorical things that that affect our times right now.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I I do want to go back to the situation in Mexico, but to expand on that point, you know, it's interesting. We have a a real uh, issue in America right now with uh, mass killings. Obviously, another in Virginia Beach this weekend as we as we tape this show. Um, during the 1960s, as most people are aware, the Vietnam War was going on. and The body counts in that were, were tremendous. Uh, not necessarily unprecedented, but certainly the first televised war where Uh, these body counts were being uh, distributed nationwide to a very shocked America. We, of course, are in a situation of perpetual war. We've been at war in the Middle East for a a long time uh, without people necessarily fully realizing the depths of our involvement. Jeremy, of course, is a a former uh, Army gunner. He served in it was the first uh, Gulf War effort, if I'm correct. Um, The parallels are very interesting. And I wonder, and, and the reason I'm kind of elucidating on this is because I'm wondering if in today's age, a, a story such as The Wild Bunch could be shot. We, we are in a golden age of television. I would say we're not so much in a golden age of cinema. And this seems like such an iconoclastic film uh, subverting a genre at the time that I'm not necessarily sure uh, a major studio would take a chance on it.
3: Well, you know, actually, Warner Brothers is doing a remake of The Wild Bunch. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and you're, you're, are you ready for this? Mel Gibson is directing... Writing and starring in it. Oh no! It should go into production next year, and uh, I so
1: <laughs> that's terrible. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm,
3: I'm dumb, dumbfounded by this news, but uh, <sighs> the Warner Brothers is going ahead with it. It it certainly uh, cannot be uh, what the Wild Bunch was. Uh, it uh, just simply for the talent that was involved with the Wild Bunch and, and a number of other reasons. I uh, I don't think that. It, it is the time to do a remake of The Wild Bunch. I think that, you know, the, the key thing, you, you talk about uh, mass shootings. Uh, Sam Peckinpah, who was a troubled man, as, as most people who know a little bit about him are, are well aware, uh, who was not without his own internal violence, but he was also uh, appalled by the violence he saw in America and in the world. He had come in at the end of World War II into China while the, the revolution was going on between the supporters of Mao and supporters of Chiang Kai-shek as a U.S. Marine observer. And he saw some really terrible things like like beheadings. And uh, are we okay? okay? Everything's great. Okay. Uh, he saw like beheadings in public squares and, and prisoners tortured um, just just horrible things, including prisoners who were Maoist uh, prisoners who were dragged behind cars as a form of torture, which then, you know, is a very important sequence in The Wild Bunch later on. Uh, but he was appalled, and he was appalled by the political assassinations and the general violence in the United States in the late 1960s. So he went on the record as saying that he wanted to show violence in a realistic sort of way with real blood and real anguish and real death is dirty. And he, he set out to do that in The Wild Bunch, and he would say later in a BBC interview, that he was hoping that if people saw this on the screen, they would go through this kind of cathartic sort of thing, and then maybe move forward in life, saying, "This is unacceptable. We can't do this anymore." And I, uh, and that's that's you, you that I can understand that read very well when I watch the Wild Bunch. Now, I think with a remake with somebody like uh, Mel Gibson making the picture, that there will be a lot of violence in it, but it'll be violence without a an intent behind it you know it's not any kind of statement of saying we can't do this anymore we have to stop now peckinpah there was a real irony there he realized five years later when he did this interview that he'd failed in what he was attempting to do and he'd sort of inadvertently created a kind of pornography of violence that moved into american movies in the 1970s um, he it's, uh, it's always interesting to me about uh, America and censorship. Americans were so squeamish about showing anything sexual in movies. Uh, and to a certain extent, that's still true, but it was fine in the 1970s to show a lot of blood, a lot of really bad things so the, the, you had the whole splatter film thing come along and, and uh, a lot of that Goes back to the Wild Bunch because of the barriers Peck and Paw broke down with the intent of accomplishing something completely different. So I, I have a feeling that the, the the next Wild Bunch that will come along will just continue kind of in that tradition of pornography of violence that's been in movies ever since.
2: That's interesting. We have a clip yeah. actually from your book that's going to be coming up in a second that discusses that. Uh, but we're going to get to that in a second.
1: I just one of the i wanted to just mention this because you know we're talking about a remake and there's certain movies that shouldn't be remade including this one and and psycho when they remade that was another one there's a lot of movies that shouldn't be remade but in the book very early on you talk about um seeing the man who shot liberty valance when you were young and how you couldn't get it out of your mind and um you know for me my movie was the shining but the funny thing about the wild bunch it was my father's favorite movie and we watched it every christmas which is <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah i heard that one before the show started and laughed then too yeah this, it was my biological father we weren't extraordinarily close and that's one of the few uh, memories i have is we did what and i come from um uh, a long line of on my dad's side of like michigan hillbillies and um tough guys and things like that and i was a book nerd but my point wanted to be is like some there's a lot we talk about um, movies and uh, books on the show a lot things that we will never forget and uh when i i read about your book i think it was in the new york review i'm pretty sure um i was like we have to we have to get this guy on but my point is we see these things when we're young and they they stay with us forever like the shining you know the 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 twins, you know,
2: and the blood right? running down the, running yeah, down the, down the elevators. Yeah. Those yeah. are,
1: you know, those are two things that I'll never forget that I saw at a very early age. And I, and it really resonated uh, with me when you're talking about Liberty Valance, how you just couldn't get it out of your mind.
3: Yeah. You know, in, in, in my case, I, of course I'm, I'm from a long line of, of Oklahoma and Texas rednecks kind of, you know, so I, I can appreciate that tough guys. Uh, you know, the thing about, Man Shot Liberty Valance, I think that was the first time I was ever exposed to art as I look back on that. And I was kind of an inquisitive little kid and, and wondered a lot about that. And I think that that's true that, uh, you know, a picture like Kubrick, you know, directed The Shining. There's, It's obviously taking an artistic approach to what you're doing. And, uh, and, and Ford did that. I think he was, I really do think Ford was... Uh, and he would deny it if he were sitting here and probably hit me with a cane or something. But, but I think he was t- trying to say, this is sort of my last statement about the West in a meaningful way. And th- there's some things I want to say here. And he, he really put some artistic intent into that picture. And, and when I was a little kid, it it resonated with me. There was something different about that, and it stuck with me. So I think, I think actually with Americans, a lot of the times our first real exposure to art is, is through media. It's through the movies or perhaps really the really good TV shows that we have going now or uh, for many, many people, it's through music. You know, it's why when you're young, you hear one song that's fine, but then you hear another song you can't get out of your head and you start thinking, why is that? And then you you kind of start to unpack that and say, well, I really like that guitar in this sense. And I like the way the drummer is playing here as you think about it more and more. And that's really what art is, is is unpacking these kinds of things from your experience of of seeing it. And certainly for me, it was the man who started Two Shot Liberty Balance was the thing that started it for me.
2: That's interesting. For me, it was very bad uh, British science fiction novellas uh, (laughs) that I've, I've still never been able to get out of my head. I want, before we go to a clip from your book, and again, our clips uh, are read by Shanna Van Volt, and this week it's Makaya McRaven uh, providing the music. We thank the International Anthem Recording Company. I did want to uh, discuss just briefly, I don't think Americans really remember or realize how popular the Western was uh, as a genre during this period. Western uh, imagery and, and Western symbolism was very popular in the United States right through the mid-1970s. Even if you watched an episode of Star Trek, the guys uh, had Western episodes, which which is a remarkable thing if you think about it. But the Western nowadays has, has largely kind of fallen by the wayside. What was it about the Western that made it such a, a popular genre to both subvert and also tell greater stories about uh, American and the American sense of self?
3: Well, you know, it, it goes back uh, to the, you know, what, what some scholars would say is is the fundamental American myth in our mythology, you know what what is to us what uh, the, the gods were to the Greeks and creating their mythology. And it is the myth of the frontier and conquering the frontier. and uh, that, that whole thing moving from east to west and, and all of that business became very much a, a big part of American culture. Then if you uh, you out of that grew, the cowboy story, and uh, you know the the lone cowboy rides into town, and that's that's the fundamental trope for the whole thing. And then I, I think uh, it, it became hugely popular after the frontier started to go away. You know, uh, particularly after around nineteen hundred, something like that. People realized that you know there there are no more buffalo herds. There, everybody is. <laughs> kind of civilized now so it became kind of this sentimental thing in those days to just start reading these novels and seeing the silent films where the whole western myth was really created and i i think it was just that that's that sentimental thing and realizing that, that we left an age that kind of got the interest going but it it uh it it continued for many many years uh in the 1950s the western dominated the new medium of television and that's where sam peckinpah came from was television that's where robert altman came from you, you just go down the list of important subsequent filmmakers who got their start in in uh in television and particularly working on westerns uh the western uh, some of these fundamental situations or and just the elements of the Western were pretty early on adapted by writers of, um, crime novels mm-hmm. and, and science fiction novels. You know, the, uh, you look at somebody like Sam Spade is very much like a cowboy in many, many ways. And, and so I think part of it is that, um, those, those, our interest in the West kind of got diverted into other genres that were building on those things that were in the West, Western to begin with. But I do think it's interesting that it's never gone away entirely. Even in this age, it's far removed from the Old West and very highly technical age. Uh, you, you still have these regular uh, appearances of some sort of Western, and many of them are very, very good. Um, so there's, it still speaks to us in some way. Uh, you know, I think, and then it's interesting when you have somebody like Quentin Tarantino making the the Django Unchained movie, uh, you know, putting a whole new twist on what's still kind of the essential Western mythology. So, I, you know, I just, it's part of, of our mythos as, as we go forward.
2: Interesting, and it's funny that you say that uh, some of that got subverted into the detective novel. I, I'm a big fan of the novels of uh, Ross MacDonald and, of course, Lou Archer. Uh, the West is a, is a very large character in those. Um, we've, we're actually 20 minutes into the show. We actually haven't heard anything from your book, Kip. Why don't we do that real quick, and then we're going to come back. We are speaking with the author of The Wild Bunch. It is a book about the movie The Wild Bunch, W.K. Stratton. We're going to hear a selection again read by Shannon Van Volt, and we'll be back with him just after that.
0: It wasn't simple. Peckinpah moved about his Malibu digs as a broken man. He was still married to Begonia Palacios, and she became alarmed as she witnessed his deepening despair. I'll never get to make another film, he said. They're never going to let me direct again. Neither Bego nor Sam could know that events were occurring in New York, Burbank, and elsewhere that would prove Peckinpah wrong. Four months after Peckinpah was fired off via rides, Warner Brothers released Bonnie and Clyde, an Arthur Penn film starring Hollywood fashion plates Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Penn crafted a superb criminal fantasy about Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker, who in real life were ignorant, small, ugly, and only marginally successful outlaws. Penn made them young and beautiful on screen, and though the picture was set in the 1930s, they seemed emblematic of the disaffected youth of the 1960s. They were violent. Penn made pioneering use of slow motion to tell their story in film, but it was the savage gun battles that created the most controversy. Blood flowed in Bonnie and Clyde, much more so than in any mainstream American movie before it, thanks to Penn's sophisticated use of blood squibs. Squibs were miniature explosive devices that originated in the coal mining industry. They resembled nothing so much as tiny sticks of dynamite and were discharged electrically by wires running under clothing. By the mid-1950s, filmmakers began experimenting with them as a way to simulate a bullet striking a human being. Prior to squibs, the best that could be done was to use a series of film edits to the film to show a gunshot followed by a shot of an actor with blood smeared on his wardrobe. By taping a wired squib to an actor's body with a small container, condoms were used early on, of stage blood adhered to it, all of it hidden under a shirt. A special effects person could trip the switch to discharge the explosive producing a bullet-hole-like tear in the shirt, and breaking the container to cause an immediate flow of blood. Bonnie and Clyde rattled the cage across America, with many mainstream reviewers condemning it for its violence and preachers damning it from church pulpits. It became a financial success with its stick-it-to-the-establishment message of rebellious love. Hollywood took note. A movie that pushed the limits in sex and violence could put baby boomer asses in cinema seats. It kicked open the door for directors such as Peckinpah to explore risque topics in an adult, artful way. A film such as Bonnie and Clyde was too much for an old-time mogul such as Jack Warner, who demanded to know what the hell he'd just seen when the movie was previewed for him. Beatty, who produced Bonnie and Clyde in addition to starring in it, was fast on his feet. He explained the film was an homage to the great Warner Brothers gangster films of the 1930s. Warner nodded, then said, what the f- is an homage? He didn't need to figure it out. He wouldn't be in charge of the studio that bore his name for much longer.
2: And that was a selection from W.K. Stratton's The Wild Bunch. It's out now from Bloomsbury. Our reader, of course, is Shannon Van Volt. We want to thank Micaiah McCraven and the International Anthem Recording Company. That is kind of getting back, uh, Kip, to something you said uh, just before we went to that break about how Peck and Paw felt unfortunately he had contributed to the pornography of violence. Some of that was technological, as we heard in that segment. One of the things that allowed him to do that was a new technique of special effects. Previously, uh, people that had been shot in films, uh, you, you could not make a realistic uh, blood spatter or a realistic sense of somebody actually being hit by a bullet. And The Wild Bunch was one of the very first films that changed that. Um, it's it's strange because in terms of movie special effects, that's probably one of the great legacies of this film, and that is not at all what Mr. Peckinpah intended.
1: Right,
3: right. It's, uh, we look back at uh, things especially like TV westerns and how really phony the violence was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Matt Dillon, the, the marshal from Gunsmoke, killed dozens and killed in quotes dozens and dozens of characters and it was always just sort of like he might shoot somebody on the streets of Dodge City and there might be a moment of reflection then it was sort of like well Chester you want to go get something to eat and everything just went on its normal way yeah. <laughs> and uh and, and Paul really didn't like that uh at all the way that that was done in television and so he was trying to get more realistic and there were some Technological innovations available to him that that helped him do that. Uh, one was an advance in in motion picture cameras. Uh, a lot of the violent sequences in in Wild Bunch were shot with six different cameras running at different camera speeds, and so then you get uh, the same uh, shot being shot at at different. Uh, speeds by the camera so that you could uh, edit those together and get some slow motion, uh, different different kinds of slow motion, all of the same actual shot. So he was very interested in showing what the anguish of violence was like. And, and going back to China one more time, he was on a train once that came under fire from Maoist rebels. And so he ducked down to the floor as bullets were whizzing around the train car. Then it finally stopped and he, he stood up and it seemed like 30 minutes had passed and he looked at his watch and it had only been a minute or two. So he got this sense that if you are in a violent situation and you know your life's on a line, it looks like everything goes into slow motion and, and this anguish of being under attack is extended. And so he very, very much used slow motion very effectively in the Wild Bunch to do that. The other big innovation was the use of squibbing, which had been used a little bit in some movies, most notably Bonnie and Clyde, uh, before The Wild Bunch, but he he took it a step further. A squib was actually, they used condoms in in those days, actual condoms, and they'd fill them with uh, stage blood. And then there would be a small explosive charge taped onto an actor's body then the condom taped over it, and that charge was connected to electronic to wires that ran under the, the actor's costume to a switch. And then when the, the uh, gunshot, so to speak, occurred and the actor was hit with the bullet, a, uh, a, a grip would push the, uh, the button, and suddenly there would be blood appear on, on the actor's costume. Well, Peckinpah took it a step further— he decided, you know, when you shoot somebody with a gun, a lot of times the bullet just goes right through you and comes out the other side. So he started squibbing actors on the front and the backs of their bodies. And the squibs were all uh, connected to the same switch. They would go off at the same time. Then he said, you know, we're going to take this a step further. Let's put a little wad of hamburger meat on the squib on the back of the actor. Mm -hmm. So then the gunshot occurs. It looks like it go, the bullet goes through the body because something flies out the back and it's actually hamburger meat but in it, it, the way they captured it on film it was very, very effective and, and, and you know, one thing I, I always tell people to keep in mind in, in 1968, 1969 there was no CGI at all if you have anything that's on, in a film like The Wild Bunch you have to create it in reality in some way, you know, so uh, they, they actually were doing this with actors. Nowadays, you could come in and create the, the gunshots with, with computer generated art, and it would be much more effective in, in many ways. Uh, there was a danger to this. Peckinpah also knew that bullets would fly through a body and sometimes hit a wall. And, you know, the, the wall would uh, have suddenly a bullet hole in it. So he squibbed walls and, and, and that sort of thing. Bo Hopkins, who was making his first movie, uh, was playing the, the part of crazy lee and he gets shot and they had they were squibbing in some of the uh the woodwork around where he gets shot and at one point one of the squibs went off and a splinter flew into his eye and so it had to be taken out peckinpah was ready to stop shooting for the day but hopkins insisted they go on and uh but he also insisted that they 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 taped the squibs directly to his body, not over a T-shirt as most actors did, because he was a new actor and he wanted to have realistic reactions to what goes on. And if you have a little explosion go off right against your skin, it's going to hurt. It's like a firecracker going off on your skin. And so he was—he was really quite a trooper through all that. But um, he certainly earned Sam Peckinpah's loyalty. What he
2: did. I don't know if I'd want to have a firecracker taped to both sides of my body with hamburger meat, but, you know, that's just me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we are talking with the author uh, Kip Stratton, W.K. Stratton. He is the author of The Wild Bunch, out now from Bloomsbury. We do need to take a pause to thank the folks that make this station possible. When we come back, we're going to have another reading from his book, and we're going to have more discussions with Mr. Stratton. Kip, you going to stick around for us?
3: I'll be around.
2: Great. We'll come back in a few minutes. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio, I-94.
0: If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. The Wild Bunch cast and crew settled into Mexico just days before the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis on April 4, 1968, which unleashed social unrest the likes of which had not occurred in the United States for more than 100 years. Rioting broke out from coast to coast with more than 100 cities suffering violence, looting, and burning. Particularly great destruction hit Kansas City, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and Chicago, where arson fires blazed out of control on the west side responding to calls for help from Mayor Richard Daley, more than 3,000 Illinois National Guard troops, supported by U.S. Army troops, began patrolling the city. The soldiers took sniper fire from burned-out buildings. Similar scenes played out in other cities. 45 people died nationwide during the rioting. Police, especially in Chicago, were not nearly as restrained in their responses to such situations as they would be in years to come. They could swing nightsticks and blackjacks freely and fire off tear gas, and Daley authorized them to, quote, shoot to kill any arsonist or anyone with a Molotov cocktail in his hand, and to shoot to maim or cripple anyone looting any stores in our city, quote. In Vietnam, the deadliest year for American forces began with the first phase of the Tet Offensive, which blindsided U.S. military commanders when it rolled out in late January. Over the next three months, Americans viewed TV reports depicting U.S. forces struggling against North Vietnamese and Viet Cong fighters in such places as Khe Hue, and Saigon itself. Casualties were staggering. A month and a half before King's assassination, nearly 550 American troops died in Vietnam in just one week, with 2,500 wounded. Just three weeks before King's death, Lyndon Johnson came close to losing the New Hampshire Democrat Party primary. Robert Ryan, who played Deke Thornton, leader of the Bounty Hunters in the Wild Bunch, had celebrated the news that his candidate, Eugene McCarthy, scored 42% of the vote to Johnson's 49%. Four days later, Senator Robert F. Kennedy renounced his support of Johnson, clearly indicating that he was planning to make a run for the nomination himself. Then, on March 31, 1968, Johnson shocked the nation when he announced that he was withdrawing from the election. Kennedy began firing up his political machine, much to the chagrin of McCarthy supporters such as Ryan. Contrary to later reports, Ryan was feeling little love for Kennedy when the Wild Bunch Company arrived in Paris. The previous summer, the folk band The Young Bloods had released Get Together, a song that urged people to smile on their brother and try to love one another. By the spring of 1968, no one in the United States seemed to be smiling at all, let alone doing much in the way of loving. It was not a bad time to be out of the country. For the months that they were in Mexico, the Wild Bunch cast and crew by and large felt disassociated with the turmoil going on back home. They settled into the digs that Charlo Gonzalez had secured in Paras, with Peckinpah, Holden, Forgnine, and a few others occupying near palatial houses. From that high standard, the quality of the dwellings dropped off precipitously. Lower-billed actors had lesser houses, in some cases doubling up with each other. Four Mexican actresses shared a house that was cramped by American standards, but the envy of impoverished people in Paras, who lived in tiny adobe structures with no running water or electricity. For the most part, the crew took over the town's hotels and motels such as they were. The crew quickly learned the wisdom of employing the seasoned desert rats trick of placing the legs of beds and cots into pails of water before retiring at night. The next morning, they'd find drowned centipedes, tarantulas, and scorpions in the buckets, that would otherwise have crawled
1: between
2: the sheets. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 1055 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. It's I 94.
1: So, Kip, before we go any further, you know, we were talking a little bit about the Mexican uh, nationals and the Mexican Americans that were in the film. Can you tell our uh, listeners and, and explain to Jamie and I the. Uh, Significance of the Mex- Mexican Revolution and the tie-ins with the Wild Bunch.
3: Well, the uh, the story of the Wild Bunch has a really interesting genesis. Uh, uh, Waylon Green uh, was grew up in Los Angeles. His his stepfather was in the movie business, and so he kind of grew up around the business. Starting as when he was a teenager, he started making trips to Mexico, and he just fell in love with the country, became completely, he was actually trilingual, he was uh, fluent in German as well, but he certainly spoke Spanish very well, and ended up deciding to go to college in Mexico City, and uh, while he was there, this is just a fascinating thing I discovered about about the Wild Bunch, uh, he had a friend who was the son of... A general who fought in the Mexican Revolution on the the side of Obregón, and in uh, Wayland met the dad. Who you know, this was forty years later at that point. But the dad was uh, whose last name was Rio Sotuche, was very very uh, full of memories of the Mexican Revolution and was articulate in expressing it. And so he started just unloading all of this stuff onto Waylon Green, who, who readily absorbed it. And then after he graduated from college, he was hired by a swimming pool company and, uh, that, that had clients in every state in Mexico. So he started traveling all around Mexico. And everywhere he went, he kept running into these old men who had fought in the Mexican Revolution who had stories to tell. So he, uh, he just absorbed this stuff, then came back to the United States and started working in television first. And then, before he'd ever uh, written a screenplay, he ended up being hired on the cheap to uh, to create this screenplay called The Wild Bunch. And he uh, the the idea of this of this movie actually started with a stunt man named Roy Sickner, and Wayland convinced Sickner that this should be set during the Mexican Revolution. And Sickner then agreed, and, and Wayland started creating these, these characters. Uh, and the, the ones who were Mexican characters were certainly based on what he had learned about the revolution during his years in Mexico. So we stepped forward then again, and Sam Peckinpah had been hired to uh, uh, work on a picture that was eventually released as Via Rides about Pancho Villa. He was himself a, a fan of Mexico. He'd gone there as a young man while he was a college student. And then after that, every chance he got, he returned to Mexico because he loved the country and he loved the people. And he he certainly wanted to do some work in Mexico. But He was given the opportunity to work on Via Rides, which actually ended up being a pretty terrible movie. But uh, <clears throat> while he was working on the screenplay, he did a lot of research into the Mexican Revolution and Pancho Villa. So he had his own um, box of information that he brought to this picture. And so you get uh, a lot more verisimilitude in, in The Wild Bunch uh, concerning the Mexican Revolution than you got in earlier pictures from, from the United States. Now, another thing that happened is that Every, there were many characters who were Mexicans in the Wild Bunch, the, the, the roles were. As it happened, everybody who was cast as a Mexican character was either Mexican or Mexican-American or, in one case, Puerto Rican. In other words, there were Latinos filling every role. Why, that was,
2: just, why was that so important? That That's a very interesting point that you make in the book, but I'm not necessarily sure our listeners understand why that's uh, a changing point in American cinema.
3: Well, you know, one thing for for Hollywood is, is a complicated place and, you know, it's generally assumed to be a very liberal kind of place. But Hollywood had a long history of, of, of racism and uh, very talented Mexican actors and, and crew members and so forth just couldn't get their foot door, in the door of the Hollywood system. And so if you had a Mexican character in a movie, you typically saw it was filled by some white guy. Uh, an example, um, there was the, uh, the, the picture, the uh, uh, title of it just escaped me, with Jack palance had playing a kind of Mexican warlord in during the Mexican Revolution the professionals is the name of the picture okay. director, Richard Brooks uh, you know it's, 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 it's a fun movie to watch very well executed but Jack Palance as a Mexican <laughs>
2: yeah. you know
3: it's, 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 this is crazy stuff and and Hollywood just did that time and time again uh, uh, tell them Willie boy is here is a is a picture about an, an American Indian from uh, southern, far Southern California. And who did they cast to play that part? Robert Blake, you know. Yes. <laughs> so they just kept doing this sort of thing. But in The Wild Bunch, uh, there was some thought of casting Robert Blake, in fact, as one of the, the primary Mexican characters. But as it happened, it ended up with this all-Latino cast playing Mexican characters. And that just didn't happen in, in Hollywood before that. So this picture is really groundbreaking in that sense. Uh, the, uh, the warlord in this picture, which is a bit of an offensive term to me, but it's often used by people, is uh, the Juarista the, the, uh, uh, General uh, is played by um, Fernando um, ah, We'll We'll get back to that. Uh, uh, Emilio Fernandez, uh, he uh, was Mexico's greatest director during its, its great film era of the 1940s and 50s, did, did many marvelous pictures that won awards in, in Europe and so forth. So he's a very important figure in Mexican cinema, making this important appearance in The Wild Bunch. Uh, there, there are a number of very talented actors who were big stars in Mexico who'd never had a chance to work in American films. Uh, Alfonso Raza is one. Uh, Jose Ruesec is another, uh, uh, who got their chance in uh, in The Wild Bunch. So, uh, one thing you learn about Sam Peckinpah is that throughout his career, he was tirelessly trying to promote the talents. Uh, people in the Mexican film business in, in Hollywood, and in almost every instance he was frustrated because Hollywood just didn't open that door. So it's 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 a very interesting aspect of the wild bunch.
2: Yeah, and of course, the Mexican film industry, I mean, we know a little more about it in Chicago just because we have an enormous Mexican diaspora here. Uh, we have possibly the largest population of Mexican-Americans uh, anywhere in, in the United States, maybe outside of Houston at the moment. But um, the, the Mexican film industry uh was enormous and uh, was as vital and viable as as Hollywood was for us. And those pictures did cross the border. If you were living in Baja, California, my, my father actually grew up there, uh, you would see many of these films in, in movie theaters there. So some of these characters and, and the people that were playing them were familiar to American audiences. So this is an interesting thing. Um yeah. It's interesting. We actually uh, we have a local horror show here known as Sven Ghuli, and last night uh, it's based out of Berwyn, Illinois. They were playing Billy the Kid versus Dracula, which featured a <laughs> bunch of uh, white actors playing American Indians and and David right. Carradine. Uh, when we were talking about the technology of special effects earlier, I just remembered they threw a, a rubber bat in the air, and that was uh, that was David Carradine turning into Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the the wild bunch really was was actually pretty pretty technologically innovative.
1: I'm sorry, I missed that actually. The Jack that sounds yeah phenomenal. it
2: was it was pretty good yeah uh
3: <laughs>
0: you know I,
3: I'll, I, let me just add one thing about that uh, you know the Mexican film industry was making movies not just for Mexico or for uh Spanish language theaters in the United States but for all of Latin America so right. you have Jaime Sanchez who is from uh, Puerto Rico originally but when he was growing up every movie he saw in the Spanish language uh uh, cinema in his hometown was from Mexico. So he, he had this whole sense of that. Also Mexican, uh, uh, music, uh, record producers were making records that turned up all through, uh, Latin America. So Jaime Sanchez said he grew up listening mostly to Mexican singers when he was a kid in Ponce, uh, Puerto Rico. So, and, and, you know, sadly, uh, all of this is, is almost unknown to most white Americans, uh, it's just what, what our, our sister country has done in terms of its, its own accomplishments. just seems to get uh, uh, ignored. I, I remember my own education. I never had anything in, in the classroom about the Mexican Revolution. And it's, it's a hugely important event, certainly for Mexico, but also for the United States. And it just it was just ignored and uh, And even today, I don't think it gets any of these issues get the attention they deserve.
2: No, and it's interesting. You brought up the 1968 massacre about the Olympic Games. I do want to get to that before we end. But just as a note, you know, you mentioned that, that Mexican cinema was producing films for all over Latin America. The most popular figure was Mario Reyes, Canton who yes. was known all over the world everywhere except for the United States. Uh, he was one of sure. the, the great leading comedians. He was more popular than Groucho Marx or anyone else. So that that industry was very vital, and it's a, it's a real blind spot that we don't know much about it. You
3: mentioned Sonia Emilio, who is still, she would play the what's the closest thing to a female lead in the Wild Bunch. She is a major performer in, in, quote, third world, unquote, uh, countries as a conductor, a dancer, and a musician. She is completely unknown in the United States, except for her appearance in the Wild Bunch. And it's it's just astonishing to me.
1: Well, just to tie into that, Kip, we we do a lot of books and translation on the show and we're friends with a lot of the publishers and there's authors that are famous all over Europe, all over the world that no one in this country knows about. And, uh, that's one of the things that, that, you know, we try and do on the show is get things that people might not necessarily know about. And that's why this book was a, a real pleasure. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you.
2: Yeah. And of course that, that does bring up something else. You know, when, when we were talking about, as you talked about earlier, the, um, the Massacre of the 200 Students and Activists in 1968. You know, that uh, we actually celebrated or commemorated that event here in Chicago last year uh, because, of course, we do have a huge uh, Mexican diaspora. Did that affect the filming of The Wild Bunch at all? Was was any of the political turmoil in Mexico City coming up to this production?
3: Uh, no. You know, in, in Paras at the time, where most of the film was was shot in, in southern Coahuila. Uh, it was so remote at that time that uh, there were no TV signals there that you could pick up, uh, only faint radio signals. It was really kind of a cut off place. So there was no direct influence from from any of that on the filming of The Wild Bunch. But certainly it was uh, an unsettled time in, in Mexico, as it was through much of the world at that point.
1: They were saying, or what you were saying in the book too, that the setting—they, they were going to do some uh, rehabilitation to the city. I think it was new water lines and things like that. And they waited up uh, until after the, the movie was shot. Correct.
3: That that's correct. Particularly the telephone and power lines. Um, oh yeah, that's what it was. That, okay. Which which had been installed essentially at the time of the Mexican Revolution in the 1910s. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, and so Warner Brothers paid the city fathers some money to hey, just hold off on replacing those till after we get through, so they can have these kind of vintage uh, telephone poles with the glass insulators and all of those sorts of things that are would be long gone if they'd up if they'd done that
2: upgrade. Hmm, sounds like our water lines here in Chicago. Uh, you know, we, we're running out of time. This has been a real pleasure. We are speaking with with Kip Stratton, W.K. Stratton, professionally. He is the author of The Wild Bunch. It is out now from Bloomsbury. It is available at finer libraries and bookshops everywhere, but we do like to plug the library as well. Please visit your local library. I wanted to ask you before we wrap it up, you know, The Wild Bunch, uh, I happened to rewatch it the other night. Uh, I don't watch it on Christmas, as, as Jeremy does, <laughs> but uh, – One of the things that struck me was some of the visual language that debuted in that film has been widely copied. And it it struck me, I hadn't seen the film for probably 20 years, and it struck me to remove that some parts of it felt very fresh, and some parts of it felt very dated to me. And I realized that was because so much of that language has been taken into other productions. You talked about slowing down of time for bullets. You know, bullet time is used by the Vorkoski sisters in all the Matrix movies. That's a direct cop from Sam Peckinpah, and, and so forth. I wonder if you could speak a little bit Tarantino to...
1: Tarantino as well. Tarantino, yeah.
2: obviously. I mean, you know, there's no... Tarantino rips everybody off. But can you talk <laughs> a little bit about Peckinpah's legacy from this film in terms of what he brought to the cinema outside of technology and bloodshed?
3: Well... Uh, I think uh, for for one thing that that Peck and Paw tried to do, he uh, he tried to to expand boundaries in cinema, and I think uh, a lot of the, the people who followed Te- Peck and Paw very much are into that. Uh, you know, what can we do to take it to the next step? Uh, he did create a vocabulary, as you mentioned, for uh, for motion pictures. An example, I, I, Robert Altman and Sam Peckinpah were contemporaries. Uh, a lot of people would say, you know, they they weren't very related in the work they do. But if you watch what I think is Robert Altman's greatest film, as well as one of the greatest Westerns ever made, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, uh, there there is a sequence in which uh, Keith Carradine's character is shot down while he's on a bridge over a frozen stream. And the way that's set up, and then the way it's done in slow motion, every and everything about that is using a vocabulary that Sam Peckinpah invented in *The Wild Bunch*. So, even somebody as dissimilar as Robert Altman is, is using this. Uh, certainly, the uh, the violence. But I think the other thing, uh, Catherine Bigelow, who directed *The The Hurt Locker* and won the Academy Award for. It, She was so taken by the editing in The Wild Bunch. There are 3,500 different cuts in that movie, and you never notice there are that many uh, edits in it, but there are. It's a record for a color film that stands to this day. Uh, She was so taken by what she thought of as gestalt uh, editing done by Lee Lombardo and and Robert Wolfe with Sam Peckinpah looking at every frame uh, that that encouraged her to become a film director. And, uh, and that you find just the way this picture is made, the editing, the way it's scored, uh, just so much about it, it has inspired uh, generations afterwards, including you know people like Steven Spielberg and, uh, and John Milius and George Lucas. George Lucas, after seeing it, came up to Milius and Spielberg and said, "I've just seen the best movie ever made." So that that's the level of inspiration The Wild Bunch has, has had on on generations of, of subsequent filmmakers.
2: Well, we've been speaking today with the author Kip W.K. Stratton. You can find out more about him at wkstratton.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-T-O-N. His new book is The Wild Bunch. It is the same name as the movie. It's out now from Bloomsbury. Kip, thanks so much for talking to us thanks, today. Thanks, Kip.
3: I've, I haven't had a better hour to spend in a long time. This has been great.
2: Well, we, we may th- we may say you need to get out of the house a little more, Kip, you know, talking to a couple <laughs> dirtbags in Chicago. Hey, we're <laughs> going to leave everybody with a final reading from Kip's book. This is toward the end of the book. Once again, we do want to thank our reader, uh, Shannon Van Volt, and we want to thank Makai McCraven from the International Anthem Recording Company. We will see you in two weeks live from Pilsen Community Books with Owen Keenan. You've been listening to I-94.
0: The fine cut of The Wild Bunch ran about two and a half hours when Warner Brothers Seven Arts previewed it in Kansas City at the Royal Theater on May 1, 1969. Fielding may have figured out that the movie was a love story, but the relationships among Bishop, Engstrom, and Thornton were by and large lost on the thousand or so normally stolid Midwesterners who packed the Royal. They mostly reacted to the violence and the ballet-like shootouts that bookended the picture. A number fled in horror, some stopping to puke in the alley. It seems so real. Peckinpah would later say he hoped that the violence in The Wild Bunch would have a cathartic effect on Americans who viewed it during the age of Vietnam and great civil strife. It certainly struck a nerve, but whether any moviegoers actually underwent catharsis that night was unclear. Seven years later, Peckinpah would say in an interview on the BBC while discussing The Wild Bunch, Bloody Sam was merely a changeover from dishonesty to at least looking at the fact that people do bleed and are hurt, but I am not responsible for the chainsaw, whatever its name is, or any of the other trash that has been put forth. I deal in violence in terms of very sad poetry. I made the wild bunch because I still believed in the Greek theory of catharsis, that by seeing this movie it perched by pity and fear and got this out of our system. I was wrong. A number of nuns who saw the film at the next preview, which was in Peckinpah's hometown Fresno, stormed out after the opening shootout. Apparently, none of them went through catharsis. A final preview occurred at Long Beach, California. The combined audience reaction cards from the three previews suggested that the majority of the viewers did not like The Wild Bunch. The people who watched it were so overwhelmed by the violence that they failed to notice that they'd just seen a masterpiece. But clearly, no one in the theaters had been bored by it. Everyone seemed to react in some way, be it negative or positive. That made Feldman and the others at Warner feel confident that the film would do good business, regardless of any controversy that might surround it. Warner Brothers' Seven Arts production head Ken Hyman was convinced it was a great picture. He'd attended the Fresno preview and had witnessed himself the audience getting into The Wild Bunch. He was enthusiastic about releasing the movie. A woman who'd seen The Wild Bunch in Kansas City had complained about it to her congressman in a letter. The congressman contacted Motion Picture Association of America president Jack Valenti about his constituents' concerns. Valenti, who often seemed at odds with the new Hollywood, stepped up and defended Peckinpah's work on First Amendment grounds. Shortly before The Wild Bunch's release, Warner Brothers Seven Arts set up a press junket to Grand Bahama Island to give reviewers a chance to see six pictures the studio would be releasing in upcoming months. The Wild Bunch was the last picture exhibited. After its showing, a press conference was scheduled with Peckinpah and some of the stars. Some of the critics, critics, people paid to review movies, walked out during the film. The lights went up to a mixture of applause and boos and hisses. Roger Ebert, just 27 years old, but already writing striking reviews for the Chicago Sun-Times, was in the audience. As he stood to leave for the press conference, a woman said to him in outrage, I never thought that I'd live long enough to see William Holden shoot a woman. She was referring to a sequence in the final shootout in which Holden's Pike Bishop shotguns Yolanda Ponce's character, Yolis. The woman was hardly the only upset person. Many of the critics unsheathed their knives at the ensuing panel made up of the film stars and Peckinpah. I have only one question to ask, said an enraged Virginia Kelly, who wrote for Reader's Digest, the popular magazine that more than any other, represented the pedestrian views of the newly inaugurated president, Richard M. Nixon's supporters. Why was this film made? Holden stared sheepishly at the table before him. Panelist Ernest Borgnine was outraged. How dare someone ask why a work of art was created? Another critic demanded to know why there was so much blood in the movie. Borgnine, the World War II vet, had had enough. Lady, did you ever see anyone shot by a gun without bleeding? Holden was now irritated too. I just can't get over the reaction here. Are people surprised that violence really exists in the world? Just turn on your TV set any night. The viewer sees the Vietnam War, cities burning, campus riots. He sees plenty of violence. I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured W.K. Stratton, author of The Wild Bunch, Out Now from Bloomsburg. This episode originally aired on June 2, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.